This Week at Hope Point. That means that you can be part of ethnic Israel and not live with God forever in heaven. That there are many people who are ethnically Jewish that are far from God. We see this in the Old Testament. King Ahab and Manasseh, they were ethnic Jews, far from God. Then we see people who were not ethnic Jews. Rahab, a prostitute, non-Jewish. And then Ruth, a Moabite, not a trace of Jewish blood in their body. Yet when you open Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ who made it into his family, it's Rahab and Ruth, not these guys. When you commit to a deep study of Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, one of the most important things to ask yourself is whether a text is literal or figurative. In today's message, Richard makes the case for why he believes the 144,000 Jews is not a literal number, but a figurative statement regarding the church. Scripture teaches that the purified church is the true Israel, and Revelation further clarifies that only the true Israel will be counted in this sealed number. As we listen to this message, the most important thing we can ask ourselves is, am I part of the true Israel? Let's listen now. If you're new to uh, Hope Point today, I want to let you know you caught us right in the middle of the book, a study of the book of Revelation. As, as no other book of the Bible, it helps us make sense of a very hard world, telling us why life hurts, why life is so difficult. If you want to look at the, the conflict that occurs in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the main conflict is really the conflict between God and Satan, God being the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit versus Satan and his demons and all the cultural forces that are demon-possessed warring against one another. Now, in a sense, this battle has been settled. Jesus Christ came from earth, laid down his life after living perfectly obedient to the Father, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins so that anybody in this, including those teenagers on that video, that say, I want to be forgiven, the victory has already been settled. Christ has, has made forgiveness possible for you. That has been settled. But the battle that still is raging is the attempt by Satan to stop the witness of the church from here to the ends of the earth, to discourage us, to deceive us, to confuse us, so that we will leave the battle. So the book of Revelation is really written for us to stay engaged in this spiritual battle, which the book tells us is going to only increase as we make our way through the chapters of the book and we make our way through the years of history. December 14, 2012, a gunman walked into Sandy Hook Elementary, killed 20 children and six adults. When we saw that in 2012, we said, we gasped. We weren't used to that. And we said, that'll never happen again. It couldn't happen the first time. Since then, that day in New Jersey, there have been 2,654 mass shootings in America, killing 2908, injuring 11,000, including the Orlando nightclub, June 2016, 50 deaths, the music festival in Vegas, 2017, 59 deaths. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018, 17 deaths. And of course, in Uvalde three weeks ago in Texas, 19 children and two teachers. Six of the nine deadliest shootings since 2018 were done by 
people that were 21 years or younger. There's a new disillusionment, a new attack on students that are causing, causing them to pick up weapons of mass destruction to do injury. So when we decided as a staff and me as a teacher, did we want to preach the book of Revelation? That's why I wanted to do it. Because I think apart from a great revival that we haven't seen since maybe 1904, the great Welsh revival, I don't see a great turning in the way the nation is going, the culture is going. So you need a grip, a foundation on how to endure and persevere. And really that's what the book of Revelation is intended to do to tell you how to be faithful to God, to teach us, to encourage you to be faithful to God during a world that's increasingly dark. So that's the book of Revelation. Reward at the end. Trials now. And the only way to stay faithful until the end is to look at the beauty, power, and reward of Jesus and to look through the faith of Scripture and say, He is worth it and it is worth it. That's Revelation. He is worth it. Suffering is worth it. In chapter 7, it's where we are today if you've come, we're looking at a group of servants who are called by God in this culture to serve him and are equipped by God to endure because they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We read that a couple weeks ago. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God and he called on a loud voice, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, we've been in this book since November, and you may feel lost since I don't know a thing about that. To make it brief, just picture that here's our, a group of servants of God that are called to penetrate this culture with the light of Christ and in order to do that, they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. They can do it. You can do it. That's the primary thing that we gained out of this teaching two weeks ago. But because the words of chapter 7 speak of this interesting number of 144,000 people that come out of the nation of Israel, we need to address that because it's one of the most confusing topics in the book of Revelation and it falls into the category of, of, of a theology called dispensationalism. This is, this is dispensationalism defined. An interpretation of the Bible that makes a big distinction between Israel and the church. It teaches that at the end of history, God will remove the church from the world and war primarily through Christian Jews. Now, you may have come here today and said, my life's breaking apart, and I didn't come here to hear and learn about a word with seven syllables. <laughs> that really doesn't excite me either, but because you were probably raised on dispensationalism as I was, and I don't think it is the best way to approach this text, I think your heart will be stronger if you move away from it, is what I want to argue for today. I'm arguing for it for the sake of your perseverance. Two weeks ago, I told you that dispensationalism looks like this in, in the Bible, that we've been trucking along for 2,000 years and 
Dispensationalism believes that at the end of history, the final seven years of history, the church will be raptured and taken from the earth. God will save a group of 144,000 Jews and they will engage in global evangelism until Christ ends history. And we're all united in, in heaven. So two weeks ago I said, I don't think that's the best way to interpret this. And I just left it at that. So I want to tell you today that you have the right, anytime that I'm looking at a scripture like right here, and you see, let me see, get there right back. Oh my goodness, that hurts your eyes. 12,000 tribes, I mean 12 tribes and 12,000 each tribe and say, that's not what it means. <laughs> you have the right to ask your pastor, why do you say there that the Bible doesn't mean what it seems to say that it means? So again, for the sake of your perseverance, I want to share with you five reasons. I'm, I don't think that's the best interpretation of Revelation chapter 7. Number one, it is totally fine for any of my dispensational brothers and sisters to disagree with my assessment of dispensationalism. It's okay if you hate this. I'm not really pleased when I come to a portion of scripture and have a, an interpretation that's different than a larger than life teacher like John MacArthur. But we differ on this. And... I think one reason I'm teaching on this today is to tell you it's okay that we disagree on anything in Scripture unless it is primary biblical doctrine. Let me say that again. Differing on certain theological issues unless it's a blatant denial of primary biblical doctrine should not fracture the church's unity. It's okay to disagree. Number two, I'm not comfortable with any interpretation of revelation or any interpretation of biblical prophecy that separates saved Jews from saved Christians. Jesus Christ died so that saved Jews and saved Christians could be one forever and ever. Paul said this in Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He didn't see ethnicities. He sees faith in Christ as what joins us together. So I'm not comfortable with any theology that says there's going to come a time when God is going to remove the church from working alongside saved Jews in global evangelism. Ephesians calls Jews and Gentiles to work together, the rich and the poor. Educated, uneducated, all together. Paul says that again in Galatians and Ephesians. Work together. We're saved in Christ. I don't see that it is a unifying theology, but rather a dividing theology to say that the church in Israel, saved Israel, will one day be separated in evangelism. Number three, I'm not comfortable teaching anything that has the potential to lessen your resolve to contend for the faith. My goal as a teacher is to spur you on to, to teach in a way that inspires more risk, more giving, more serving, more trust in hard times. Not to say something to you that says when we get toward the finish line or to use the 
metaphor of football game to get toward the goal line that you can lateral your God-called responsibility to someone else. Such as the nation of Israel that's saved in Christ. There's nothing in the teaching of Christ that ever says the church will not finish the task of sharing Christ with the nations. It's just not in Scripture, in my opinion. Now, as we move toward the end of times, Jews will continually come to Christ. We may look at that a little bit next week, and we shout hallelujah, but we will work side by side with saved Jews until Christ returns. It's just hard for me to imagine that Jesus Christ would commission the church in Matthew 28 to go into all the world until the end of time, and then seven years before the end of time, he takes the church out. That's like removing Tom Brady with two minutes left in the game. That's not the time for us to leave the battlefield. So I don't want to ever teach in a way that says, when we're near the end of the war, you serve less. And I think dispensationalism inspires that. To coast, maybe even retreat. I don't want you to buy into the very American mindset that suffering for the gospel is someone else's responsibility. It's us, it's the church, not Israel. Listen, God wrote the Bible to comfort believers in the first century and the 10th century and the 21st century. And if the book of Revelation is only written to encourage the church at the end of time, the final seven years of history, then who and what is going to comfort people now? No, we're not waiting for comfort. The Holy Spirit is our comfort. He has sealed us now. We can suffer we can persevere by his power. Number four, why I teach Revelation 7 the way I do, I want you to learn to expect Revelation to teach important realities through the use of symbols that are not real. You're going to be very confused if you pick up the 22 chapters of Revelation and think that everything you read, oh, that's real. The, the lesson is real, but the figure and the symbol that's used is often not real. It's just figurative language that's used in a, a type of teaching called apocalyptic literature. I could prove this pretty easy with just one chapter of the Bible. Revelation 17. The writer says in the end of time, it talks about a woman who sits on seven hills. Now either those are very small hills or that's a very large woman. So clearly here we say, that's not real. That's figurative language. And the early church, if you ever want to know who understood the book of Revelation the easiest, it was the early church, the first recipients of the letter, because they understand when you're writing apop apocalyptic literature, you are supposed to make use of wild language that arrests the attention of the heart and the mind in a new way. That's the purpose of apocalyptic literature. They wrote that way. And so this woman who sits on seven hills, it's a description of the city of Rome. Rome at that time was outlined. The old ancient boundary markers were with seven hills outlined Rome. 
the capital of Rome, shook its fist at God. It was compared to an adulterous woman who led its people into all sorts of immorality and blasphemy. And so God says in Revelation 17, I'm going to bring that woman down. That's God's way of saying, I'm bringing down all worldly systems, all worldly cities, all God-defying systems. And it's figurative language in order to teach a real point. So how do we know that when we come to a particular part of Revelation, oh, that's figurative. How do we know that 144,000, that's the one, oh, it's figurative. I'd like to share with you how I got there because I think it will help you. So you have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that make up the 144,000. You say, why do you say that's figurative and it's not literal? Because if John were trying to convince you and I that in the end times, 144,000 tribes, people from the tribes of Israel, I don't think he would have so messed that list up that he did. Totally messed it up. This list does not appear in this order anywhere in the Bible except in Revelation 7. The, the one, two, three, four order. Judah is never at the top of the list. But I think John put Judah at the top, the tribe of Judah, because Jesus Christ, our Messiah and Savior, came out of that tribe. And so when he wanted to talk about the hope of the end times, he wanted to talk about out of that tribe is the hope of the world. So he changed it up. That's the mission of the church, to talk about out of Judah, Christ the lion came and the lamb for the hope of the world. Then you look at these tribes of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. They're never at the top of any list in the, in the Bible of Israel, of the 12 tribes. Why did they move up? I think John wanted to shake it up again and say in the end times, God's going to do a massive work among the, out, the outcasts and the unreached. The 12 tribes of Israel they came from a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. Those are the names of his sons. Jacob had 12 sons. Eight of them came from two wives. Four of his sons came from household maids they had sexual relationship with. The children who came from the maids are Gad, Asher, and Neptali. And another one that... Didn't make the list, I'll tell you about in a minute. So I think John mixed all of this up to say in the end times, God is going to send his church to reach those who you would say are unreached and outcast. Third interesting thing about this list is there is a completely missing name of one of the children, one of the tribes. The name of Dan is gone. I mean, one of the 12 children, one of the 12 tribes of Israel is not listed in Revelation 7. Instead, Manasseh takes his place. And Manasseh is not even one of the original 12 children. He's a grandson. Why did Dan get booted? If your name's Dan, I apologize. It's a good name now. It wasn't a good name then. Because it was the tribe of Dan that most often led Israel into idol worship. And God was telling us that in the end of times, he's going to raise up a people that are increasingly pure and free from idols. He completely rearranged this list. I don't think there's any way it could be literal because of all the changes that he's made. And then your final question probably is, 
Why 144,000? My guess would be, I've thought about this a lot. It's just a big old number. But it's a good big number. The number 12 is always in Scripture, the number for the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 12 apostles in the New Testament. That's everybody that's coming to God. 12 times 12 and then I really think John just said as in apocalyptic writers do, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Like we would say there's a million, there were a million balloons at the party. Probably not. It's just the... It, Apocalyptic literature makes use of large language to talk about a sudden change, a good change, a large change. And by the way, we saw last week, in, or the last time I taught you in Revelation, when we get to Revelation 14, we do see the 144,000 again, and not a mention of Jews at all, saved Jews at all. It's, it's the church, composed of saved Jews, but it's, it's the church redeemed from all over the earth. That's where the 144,000 come from. Not from Israel, from all over the earth. And if you really want to be a literalist, and the reason why I'm, I'm taking the time here, I want you to understand as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see more and more symbols that I'm going to take the liberty with to say it doesn't mean that. And I want you to know I have the right, I, I have to do that because if you say, no, I know it's 144,000 Jews get saved in the end times. Well, then you have to explain this. This is the description in Revelation 14. These are the, the ones who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins, and they were purchased from among mankind. And again, another reference to the nation. So if you believe it's literally 144,000 Jews that get saved in the end, none of them are women. So they did not defile themselves with, with women. It's just all men that get saved from Israel. I don't, I don't think it's a good case to try to say it's literally 144,000 people out of, out of Jews. Number five, why do I interpret chapter seven like this? I'm concerned that the focus of the salvation of 144,000 ethnic Israel, from ethnic, from ethnic Israel, detracts from the much greater question that every living person should ask, am I a part of true Israel? Because that's the only way you're getting into heaven. If you are a part of true Israel, no one that does not belong to true Israel, no one will spend eternity with God unless they, are, unless they belong to true Israel. We'll chase this out with several verses. Romans 2, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, not, not ethnically, not with religious uh, system, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcised of the heart. It's not your ethnicity that God ever looks at. Is it what is going on in your heart with you and Jesus determines whether or not you are a Jew, a true Jew. The only question that matters in life is this. Am I part of the true Israel whose hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God. Again, since I've raised this question, true Israel, I want to prove again the Bible talks in that kind of language. True Jew, true Israel. It's very important that you say, am I part of believing Israel? 
Look at Galatians 6. Neither circumcision, that would be a reference to Jews, nor uncircumcision, that's a reference to us non-Jews, means anything. What counts is the new creation. Has Jesus Christ made you new? Not any ethnicity or your religious commitments. And then look how Paul ends Galatians 6 with verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. He just said that the circumcision and the uncircumcision, Jews and Gentiles, all those who believe, that's all he said in Galatians for six chapters, all Jews, all non-Jews who believe in Christ are part of the true Israel. So over and over again, I want to ask you a question. Are you part of the true Israel connected to God or are you just connected to a religious organization like many of the Jews were in the Old Testament? Look how Paul said what I just said in Romans chapter 9. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What kind of statement is that? That means that you can be part of ethnic Israel and not live with God forever in heaven. You could be part of ethnic Israel and be separated from God forever. That there are many people who are ethnically Jewish that are far from God. We see this in the Old Testament. King Ahab and Manasseh, they were ethnic Jews, far from God. Then we see people who were not ethnic Jews. Rahab, a prostitute, non-Jewish, a Canaanite woman, and then Ruth, a Moabite, not a trace of Jewish blood in their body, yet when you open Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ who made it into his family, it's Rahab and Ruth, not these guys. So the most important question you can ask in life is, am I relying on something other than Jesus for my standing with God? Because these women had no ethnic tie to Israel and yet they are in heaven today. The reason that Jesus Christ was so disruptive when he came to earth is because he came to explain to the Jewish people they had forfeited their calling as the true Israel and he had come to be the true Israel. Jesus Christ and everybody connected to him is the true Israel. When Jesus came to earth, his purpose was to relive Israel's history because they failed to be the people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was called a vine. God said in all, you can read any of those passages in the Old Testament. God said, I planted a vine and I wanted that vine to go to all the earth and to influence every nation with the kingdom of God. That was Israel's calling, to be an ever-spreading vine. Look how Psalm 80, which is one of these, how it states it, how Israel was called to that, yet failed at that. Psalm 88, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Look how much God did for them. You cleared the ground for it and took and it took root and filled the land. Its branches reached out as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. So Israel was growing. This is the purpose of God. Grow, grow, grow. If you ever look at where Israel is positioned on the map, right there in the middle of the world, 
50-mile-wide strip of land, 300-mile long. And there in the center of the world was Israel, intended to be planted as a vine to grow and influence the entire nation. I mean, the entire world. But they didn't do it. They were called to be a vine, and they didn't do it. So they, they withered, they died. Psalm 80, 16, your vine is cut down and it's burned with fire at your rebuke, your people perish. This verse could be applied hundreds of times in the Old Testament where the people of God, their land was destroyed, invaded, taken over because they were not the faithful vine. So when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, and you see that over and over again they failed to be God's vine, and that's, he wanted his glory and his love and his peace and his salvation to be known throughout the earth and it wasn't going to happen to Israel, it makes you ask the question, did the plan of God fail? No, he had a backup plan, which was his original plan because he knew Israel would fail. Israel failed in order for us to look forward to one who would not fail. Psalm 80 talks about that one who came as the new Israel, the true Israel. Psalm 80, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man that you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Even in the Old Testament, one of these brief glimpses into the coming of Jesus Christ who came as the true Israel, the true vine because Israel failed. And Christ came to do what Israel refused to do. I want you to think about this a minute. The last night of Jesus Christ is on earth with his disciples. He celebrates the Lord's Supper with them in Jerusalem. He walks through the streets of the city and out the gate. And as the disciples turn around and look at the gate, there's a, a metal vine, an emblem on the gate because Israel always regarded itself as the vine. It was even on the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus walks right past that metal vine and then he stops at a, it's about a mile walk because he, he's headed to the Mount of Olives to pray and on the way he stops by a garden, a, a, a grove of, of vines and Jesus tells his disciples, look at the, what these vine dressers are doing and Jesus said to them, I am the true vine, I am the true Israel and my father is the gardener. God planted Israel in the Old Testament. They failed to be the vine. Jesus Christ came to relive their history in perfect obedience. Jesus Christ is the new Israel. And then look what Jesus says to his disciples about how you can be a part of the true Israel. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. <laughs> If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, which we saw so much so often in the Old Testament. The vine that refused to grow, not connected to the life of God. Israel departed from the Lord. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ, hopefully we can look at this a little bit better next week, but just to give you a taste, when Jesus Christ said he's the vine and we're the branches, the Apostle Paul took off on that in Romans chapter 11 and says, you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, that you who are not ethnically Israel 
have been made a part of the vine Jesus because you have your faith in him. And everybody that rejects Christ is cut off from the sap, from the life, from the love, forever and ever from God. The only way to be connected to God is to be connected to the true Israel, Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, the similarities between him and the nation of Israel are just unbelievable. They're stunning. Jesus picked 12 disciples, right? The nation of Israel started with Jacob having 12 sons. Then we look at Jesus Christ early in his ministry was baptized and then he went to the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. Israel, when God rescued them in the Old Testament, he took them through the water of the Red Sea where they spent 40 years in the wilderness. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him at his birth so his his mom and dad had to flee as refugees to Egypt. Pharaoh, as soon as the leader of Israel in the Old Testament was born, Moses, Pharaoh tried to kill him. And so you see that God rescued Egypt, I mean Israel out of Egypt, and therefore Jesus Christ, when he returned with his family after Herod died, the book of Matthew was said, the prophecy was fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. And here, Jesus, God refers to both Israel and Jesus as his son. I just want to let you know the true Israel, the true Israel of God is Jesus Christ and all those who have been grafted in and belong to him and have his life. Look again at, we see how, we see Jesus in the Old Testament <laughs> Jesus said in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. For 40 years, how did God feed Israel? Through bread that came down out of heaven. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. For 40 years, how did Israel walk in the dark, in the wilderness? God sent a light, a burning pillar of light to guide them for, for 40 years. I just want to encourage you to, to know that Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God and all those who are connected to God through him are part of the true Israel. So what's the point of all of this today other than teaching you a seven-syllable word of dispensationalism? Number one, I want you to rejoice in Jesus Christ that he is, he has fulfilled everything that Israel failed to do. And all of the life of God that he wants to make available to you is made available because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If you are connected to Christ, you are connected to God. You are part of the true Israel. In fact, I would even say this in life, in, in the in light of the word dispensationalism, there is people who hold to dispensationalism believe that there needs to be one more chance at the end of time for Israel to get it right and that's why they have the seven years that they are to be global evangelists during the tribulation. Israel doesn't need to get it right. Jesus has done that. The true Israel has been lived out through Christ. Israel 
would never be faithful to carry that out. And Jesus has done it for them and for us. Number two, why did I teach on this today? We encourage you to be the vine that God called Israel to be. If you're part of the true Israel, then your calling in life is to spread the witness and the aroma and the fragrance of Christ in your family, in your neighborhood, in your company, in the city community, to the nations. Be the vine that Israel failed to be. Through Christ, spread the vine of hope and glory and love and forgiveness throughout the world. And number three, ask yourself today, are you connected to God through Christ? Only way you can go to heaven is to be part of the true Israel. The only way to be part of the true Israel is to be connected to the true Israel, Jesus. He is the vine. You are either grafted into Jesus or you're alone and separated from him, separated from God. You're either grafted in or you're away. Grafted in by faith, grafted in by surrender, or you're separated from God forever and ever. I want to end with a sobering call to ask yourself, do you belong to Christ? I know that you have probably read over the past three weeks revelations that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention that have occurred over the past 20 years and more. Incredible amounts, hundreds and hundreds of cases of sexual abuse by pastors, church leaders, denominational leaders. Not only did it happen, but it was hidden. It was not dealt with. It was excused. Why it's come out now, I have no idea. But we are thankful that it's come out now. We are saddened that the world has to watch us as the church do this to the witness of God over and over and over and over and over again. It is a miracle that anybody would ever come to church the way we behave. Pastors, sexually abusing church members, hidden. You say, how could that happen? Because they were connected to a denomination. They were connected to a church. They were connected to their work. But they were not connected to the vine of Jesus. Because when you're connected to the vine of Jesus, you will not live like the world. And so my challenge and disappointment with pastors and church leaders applies to every member of the church, the city, the church I pastor. If you are living like the world, you give evidence that you are not part of the true Israel, that you are not connected to Jesus, and the life of God from heaven is not living in you and you will be separated from him forever. So ask yourself today, am I connected to Jesus 
so that he can bring me into a relationship with God the Father and his life can become my life. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.